Good morning. Looking forward to your hamburgers and hot dogs, I hope. Uh, I'll never forget uh, Alex Montoya. I had a class, a preaching class with Alex Montoya over at Master Seminary. And my, the class, for some unknown reason, they booked it from 11.30 till about 12.30, 1 o'clock. And about 12 o'clock, in the middle of the class, he'd begin using his food illustrations. And we would sit there and groan the whole time. My stomach would... And he, he, I, think, I think it was his goal to see who could make the loudest groaning stomach noise in the class. So I, I will try to spare you using food illustrations. However, if you notice, there are some in the passage. So we'll talk about that as we get in there. Right about the time when you should start getting hungry. The title of the message is Discerning the Truth, Discerning the Truth, Matthew 16, 1 to 12. We are in the middle of a section where the crescendo of opposition is happening. The tension is growing. We know that Jesus has revealed himself to Israel. He has shown himself to the people. And in the process, most have rejected him. Already by this time, John 6 has happened, where the feeding of 5,000, and John 6 has happened where he had many come, and he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and most left, and Jesus says to the few disciples left, he says to them, are you going to leave too? And they say, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. But the vast majority are beginning to oppose him, and The main argument was, you do miracles by the power of Satan, by Beelzebul. This is a rejection of the Messiah. And in the process, Jesus begins to hide himself as an act of judgment on these people, not showing himself to them, going to different locations. Remember, even Herod began to think that he was John the Baptist resurrected in some way or reincarnated, or whatever. And the, the idea was is that he had to get away from Herod's area, so he went to the other side of the lake, remember? What's really interesting on this is that he keeps hopscotching back and forth across the lake. He'll go from one side to the next, and then up to the north, and then over to another section. And almost every time he lands in Jewish area, he lands in that Jewish area, guess what happens? There's... Jewish Pharisees or someone there to confront him and call into question what's going on. Last week we saw he hopscotched across to avoid the opposition. Remember he had started up here and he did that healing and he came down on the outside on the on the east side of the lake which would be close to in the capitalist and did the feeding of the 4,000 which was mostly Gentiles, remember? So he's sharing... And, 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 and uh, healing Gentiles in this area. He gets back in the boat today after feeding the 4,000 and goes back across. Now, they give a, 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 there's a, if you look at the end of verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 39, and sending away the crowd, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Now, where is this? Well, everybody I read says we don't know. They're not positive. But 
they believe it's back over here in the Jewish area, which would make sense because who shows up? The Jewish people show back up, right? Then he has this one little interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, also known as the Herodians, and because the Sadducees were all about Herod, following him. And they get back in the boat halfway through our passage and go back over to this area. And then next week, he's going to travel all the way up here into the Caesarea Philippi area, which is Gentile area again. Ultimately, getting away from the Jewish people. And it's extremely important because what happens up here in Caesarea Philippi is in the second half of Matthew 16 is all about announcing he's the Christ. Remember, Peter says that great statement. And after that, Jesus makes a profound statement. He says, what? We're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And after three days, I'll rise from the dead. Right? That is a huge turning point. Basically, what's happened is you've been offered to the Jewish people. The Jewish people have said, no, I don't want you. And even all the spiritual leaders are coming out and they're questioning him and they're testing him. And he's doing what? Going away. And he goes up to a Gentile area to announce and have announced who he is by one of his disciples. So what's happening? The opposition's growing. And his death is coming. Probably within less than six to eight months, Jesus is going to die. All of this is the crescendo to his death. It's interesting. We've got a lot more to go in Matthew, right? But the time period is very short. The profound announcements are coming. Peter will confess that Jesus is the Christ. And there's really three groups that are shown in this narrative as he's going along. Matthew's showing this. He's showing the no-faith people, the no-faith people, which would be the Pharisees, Sadducees, and most of the Jewish leader, the Jewish leadership. Many of them are the no-faith people. Then there's the little-faith people, which would be his disciples. He often calls them you of little faith. He's already done it, and he'll do it again in our passage today. The little-faith people, the disciples. Yes, they're regenerate, but they're, they have little faith. And then there's the great faith people. And the great faith people are the ones that you would never expect. If you were Jewish and you were writing Matthew's gospel, you would never say the great faith people are a centurion? No way! Or a Syrophoenician lady? A Gentile woman? Why would you say them? They were embracing the Messiah with very little revelation and outside the known people of God. The dogs were coming to Christ. Profound. Profound truth. So as we trace through this, we're going to see those three types of people. And I would challenge you to ask yourself, which one am I? And what am I like? Am I a no-faith person or am I a little-faith person or am I a great-faith person? I don't think any of us in the room would say, yep, that's me, I'm the great faith person. We'd all grow in our faith, couldn't we? Today we will see how these two groups were able to discern that that is the no-faith people and the little-faith people are in this passage. We have the no-faith people, which would be the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then the little-faith people are the disciples in the second half of the passage.
these two groups will see that they're unable to discern what's happening and who Jesus really is. They don't really get it. They don't completely understand it all. We'll learn that one cannot discern the truth when he or she is fixated on the world. That's what we see in this passage. We cannot discern what the truth is if we're fixated on the world. So the two examples of people fixated on the world that can't discern the truth are the spiritually blind religious leaders. They're in verses 1 to 4. And then we'll see the fleshly-minded disciples in verses 5 to 12. This is a great passage for us to look at and see which one are we. (laughs) And hopefully we'll respond appropriately when we understand just who Jesus is. Let's look at these two examples. First, let's start with the spiritually blinded religious leaders. Verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. He left them and went away. Interesting. His judgment comes right at the end of that, doesn't it? So who are these people? Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, these two groups were political and spiritual enemies. They hated each other. However, they united in their opposition to Jesus. The one uniting factor in the world is the world's hatred and unbelief of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will bring all parties together. This is the first time that the Sadducees are mentioned as interacting with Jesus. They were much more associated with Jerusalem and the region around the city, so down to the south. Their travel up to the north with the Pharisees pointed to a a serious concern on their behalf over Jesus and what he was doing. They were concerned. Word had gotten down to these political leaders, these religious political leaders, hey, let's go up and take care of this guy. The Sadducees were politically motivated spiritual liberals. They denied the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures. They used the Scriptures to promote their own political agenda for power continuously. They just wanted power, and they had power, political power and influence with Herod. That's why they're also called the Herodians in Mark's passage. The Pharisees, however, were also politically motivated to a degree. But they were spiritual conservatives. They were clean on the outside, but legalistic dead men on the inside. They couldn't really see the truth of who they were and who Jesus was. The two groups came together to test Jesus. This wasn't a test to reveal the glory of Christ. It was a test in a desire to trap him and discredit Jesus. They wanted him to be disgraced and shamed. And so they say, show us a sign from heaven. You can see how they would be thinking. They would use 
Scripture, they probably in their minds, they were thinking, Moses brought bread from heaven. (laughs) Give us some bread from heaven. Elijah brought down fire from heaven. Call down fire, then we'll believe. But, Jesus was from heaven. The great sign was there. God incarnate was standing in front of them. He was the ultimate sign. He was the revelation of the Father, as John 1 states. But they were clueless and didn't realize it. Jesus' answer is once again nothing short of genius. The all-wise one with a true, it starts with a true statement about his opponents. And then a rhetorical question, then a final rebuke. We see it, let's trace down through it. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? Okay, so what's all this mean? Well, real simple, it means Jesus says, you're able to discern the weather, but you're clueless about understanding the times. You don't get it about how I'm all that the Old Testament had fulfilled. You are able to look out and see that the weather's going to be bad. You can see that, and you can observe that, and you are relatively wise in your understanding of observing those things, but you don't realize what's really happening right now. It's interesting, he could have said, you just don't know who you're talking to. You really don't get it. In a sense, he's saying, if you knew the scriptures, you would know that know who I am, and you would know that I'm fulfilling all that the law and the prophets spoke about. You would know, because the scriptures pointed to who I am, all the way through it, and when I show up and I start doing this, you should say, yep, that's the one. Instead, you want a heavenly sign. But what you have been given should be enough to properly identify who Christ is. However, as Carson states, quote, proof that they cannot discern the signs is they ask for a sign. End quote. Proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. By asking for a sign, they don't get the Bible. They don't get what they're seeing. They're clueless. They didn't know God's revelation. And therefore, as they observed the events of their day, they were clueless to who Jesus was. Therefore, they asked for a heavenly sign when the heavenly sign, like I said, was standing right in front of them. Next, Jesus directly rebukes him. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus here directly rebukes the religious leaders. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. What's that basically saying to them? Boy, that one wouldn't go over real well, would it? Can you imagine if that was the confrontation that we made even in our world today? Hey, if you are wanting a sign, can you, has anybody ever said, man, just give me a little bit of proof that God exists? What if you said, an evil and gen- adulterous generation asks for proof? 
What would they say? Well, he confronts them, doesn't he? He says that their heart, their motives, their way of life is what? Evil. They're adulterous. They just don't have the heart to see. He didn't sugarcoat it either, did he? I mean, he brought out the bat, for lack of a better term. He says, you're evil and adulterous. Your whole generation is this. All your people are this. Yeah. In our in, in our culture, this would just not work. You would be shamed. Oh, you're so unkind. You're not very gentle here. Not very gracious. You just called us evil and adulterous. And you didn't just call me that. You said our whole generation is that. Lessons on evangelism from Jesus. This isn't the first time Jesus has confronted the Pharisees, at least this way. Matthew 12, 39. Last time Jesus was confronting some Pharisees and scribes. This time he's confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees. In 12, 39, he says the same basic things. The miracle-denying liberal Sadducees had no problem voicing their skepticism. In some ways, you could see how this would work. The Pharisees were like, hey, let's get these guys that don't believe in anything miraculous and get them to come down with their skeptical hearts and let them let him let them accuse him. But Jesus wasn't biting, was he? Was Jesus biting? No, Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus was able to do all the miracles that Moses and Elijah and any of the prophets involved. He could do all that. Do you understand that, beloved? Do you think Jesus could have rained down fire from heaven? Yeah. You know why? Because he had done them. Do you understand that he's God incarnate? Do you know that all of those miracles were Jesus? But Jesus knew these spiritually blind religious leaders. They knew their hearts. And the miracles were not going to change their hatred for him. So Jesus alludes to only one miracle to come that would be given, but even this miracle, as we will see, will be rejected. The sign of Jonah is another allusion to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and who he is. Remember, Matthew, turn back there, look at it again. He's already used this, Matthew 12, 12, 1239. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Here he explains it. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is an allusion to his death, burial, and resurrection. This is an allusion to his death. So the message is the same in both places, isn't it? It's almost like a broken record. Only one sign. The sign that I'm going to die and rise from the dead. So Matthew probably summarized Jesus' argument the second time here, knowing Jesus probably developed it just as much like he did in 12. You know, every word is not... He doesn't give every word Jesus said. Some of them are summaries. This might have been one of them. 
Jesus used it with the Pharisees and Sadducees back in 12, so most likely he did it here. But notice his response. I don't know about you, but this is one of the most petrifying responses of all. Look back at 16.4. After exposing them and showing them that they they can discern what's out going on out there, but they don't know and understand the times, ultimately they don't get who he is. They don't understand who he is. He confronts them and says they're adulterous, uh, evil and adulterous generation. And then he leaves them. Ooh. And went away. Do you understand what this means? <laughs> this means no more for you. No more revelation of me to you. My last word to you is you're an evil and adulterous generation. Bye. Wow. Grace to the humble, law to the proud. Just confronts them. They had rejected him. They should have known him. The problem of the spiritual leaders is they didn't know their Bibles. <laughs> they didn't know their Old Testament. I think it's important Note here, spiritual leaders who don't know the revealed Word of God who are, or who are unable to identify the main themes of Scripture are not people to follow. That seems very simple, doesn't it? But these were the people that were leading the Jewish people. These were the ones that were leading the direction of the Jewish people and they didn't know their Bibles. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't understand that He was the Messiah. They couldn't see very clearly that He was the one. Sadly, beloved, I'm concerned we are repeating much of the same mistakes in our country today. Our spiritual leaders are politically driven more than biblically grounded. Everything is about worldly concerns, even the so-called spiritual leaders. We need to get out of politics and get back to the Bible. When Newsweek, or Newsmax rather, lists, Newsmax just recently listed these. Joel Osteen, Pat Robertson, Rick Warren, Jerry Falwell Jr., Creflo Dollar, John Hagee, T.D. Jakes, and Paula White as some of the most influential people in evangelicalism, the top 20. They all made the top 20. We need to run. That's scary. These people don't even know the Bible. And these are the most influential people? We got a problem. We're no different than the people following after the Pharisees and Sadducees. find it ironic that you've got people on both sides of the aisle politically in that list that I just listed out to you. There's a problem. Maybe we should stop getting into that stuff and go back to the Bible. We can't understand our times if we're not. We're not going to identify the true Jesus of the Bible. An argument can be made that the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day have nothing on these spiritual blind leaders of our day. 
matter of fact, you could probably argue they knew their Bibles better than these people that I listed. That's petrifying. What should we do with these spiritually blind religious leaders? Exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Exactly the same thing. You ready? And you can repeat this on Twitter if you'd like. Avoid the leaven of those spiritual leaders. Just like Jesus says in this spot. Avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. The application is clear. It's the same. If you don't know the scriptures, don't listen to them. A discerning spiritual leader is only as good as his understanding and submission to the word of God. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get it. They didn't get it. They really didn't understand the scriptures and they really didn't submit to the scriptures. Jesus rebuked the leaders because they were unable to discern the signs of the time. Ultimately, he was rebuking them for not knowing the word of God and the promises it had about his day and who he was. Jesus wasn't expecting them to know the secret will of God. Hear me closely. He wasn't, he wasn't wanting them to know some mystical, unknowable truth about who God was. It wasn't that the sign of the times were some kind of mystery some kind of secret coding of the Old Testament that they somehow had to figure out. He wasn't saying that. This was the clear, objective Word of God. It was so clear that anybody should have seen it. Anybody that saw Him, they should have said, Yep, that's the one. But their hearts were wicked. Jesus said it, didn't He? He said it in John 5.46. He said, if you believe Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me because he wrote about me. So, beloved, how do you know whether you're following these wrong, spiritual, wicked, false teachers? Well, first of all, you need to know the Word of God yourself. You need to be a good Berean. Do you study the Word of God? Someone who knows the Word of God is able to avoid being swept up by false teachers and spiritually blind religious leaders that point them away from Christ. Do you understand? We have no excuses. Many of those people were illiterate at the time. And they were being led away astray by Pharisees and Sadducees because they could not defend, they could not understand, they could not read. They were dependent completely on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. But you have no excuse, beloved. Every one of you has a Bible. Every one of you better be reading it. You better be studying it. Because the plan of Satan has not changed. It has been to lead people astray from the very beginning. Pharisees and Sadducees were evil. And so Jesus left them in judgment. Notice how this plays right into Jesus' advice to his disciples as he departed with them. 
This brings us to the second example of people group who lacked awareness of the truth. It's the fleshly-minded disciples. Matthew 6, 16, 5. And the disciples came to another side of the sea, to the other side of the sea, rather. But they had forgotten to bring any bread. Warning, warning, warning. They forgot to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But because of the leaven of the Pharisees. Once again, Jesus was on the move. As we will see next week, Jesus takes the disciples to the Gentile area far away from most of the Jews. They get in a boat again and they travel across the Sea of Galilee and the disciples came to the other side of the sea. So again, looking down here, down here where this is the Sea of Galilee, they're up in this area, somewhere in that area, and they take another boat across a portion of the sea. Right? Getting away again, fleeing again from the Jewish leaders that are in opposition to Jesus. But we need to know what is on Jesus' heart as he travels to this new area and begins to go north towards Caesarea Philippi. Jesus knew his days were numbered. His time of his death and his departure were not far off. As mentioned, six to eight months away. Another major turning point is about to occur in these events. And Jesus is completely focused on a, on a different thing than the disciples. His Total focus is on the end is coming. The end is coming. My death is coming. It's coming. I know it's coming. The sign of Jonah would be what? In his mind, a reminder. My death is coming. My death is coming. My death is coming. These people hate me. They're going to kill me. They're after me. I'm going to die. In fact, from Mark's account of these events with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It had really moved Jesus emotionally. In Mark 8.12 it says, when the Pharisees had spoken, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit over their test and unbelief. This is like he groaned within his soul. Jesus knew the opposition. He knew they hated him. And it moved him. Oh, this is... Difficult. So as, he, as they departed in the boat, Jesus was heavily burdened by those that were in opposition. He loved them, but they hated Him. You know, it, it reminds me of that passage where Jesus says, Oh, if I was like a chick, I could, a mother, I could gather you under my wings. 
just burdened by the opposition and how much they hated him and how much they wanted him dead. They did not love him at all, even though the Scriptures had said he was their hope. They were his people. So he was burdened and he's in the boat and he's going. And the disciples are thinking about bread. So Jesus states and says to them, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. From the groaning heart, you get it, right? The shepherd, he's groaning. He sees this opposition. He sees their evil. Sees that they're leading thousands and thousands and thousands away from him. They hate him. And what does he do in his shepherd's heart? He says, watch out for them. Watch out for their teaching. He's groaning. He's hurting. Man, he didn't say this. He couldn't have said this. And we don't know, but and a little bit, but if you're groaning and you're struggling and you're moved emotionally over the opposition, do you think he would have said, hey, beware that bread from them. I guarantee you it wasn't one of these smiles, hey, this is good, everything's great. I'm just, hey, watch out, don't eat their bread. Would he have been thinking that? This would have, this should have been obvious to them, shouldn't it? It should have been. He says it should have been. But the disciples were thinking about their stomachs. And they forgot the seven baskets full of leftover bread. They forgot it back there. Man, if we just would have brought like six of those baskets. So we come to yet another example of people who lack discernment because their focus had turned away from the Savior and onto their circumstances. Same problem when Jesus came. When Peter got out of the boat, remember? His focus got off of Christ and on to the circumstances. It's off of Christ now. It's on bread. Where is it? We don't have enough. Is there enough hamburgers? Did we buy enough today or not? It would be almost comical, wouldn't it? If it wasn't so sad. Are you sitting there thinking about your nice juicy hamburger? Lettuce, tomato, hopefully somebody brought that. Mayonnaise, ketchup. Maybe a little bit of cheese on top. I just pulled an Alex Montoya on you. Oh, beloved, there's a much more important message than getting our food and our bellies filled. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's much more important than getting to your lunch on time or getting your bellies full. The disciples had witnessed a Various 
array of miracles, haven't they? No human had ever seen what they had seen. Uh, stop. Put yourself in their spot for just a second here. Think through what they're going through, what they went through. <laughs> they had seen healings, massive amounts of healings, raising of the dead, delivered demon possessed people, and walking on water and calming the sea. And Jesus fed more than 4,000 twice. Twice from a few fish and some bread. They had seen people worship him. Numerous times they had seen glorious glimpses of Jesus. Numerous times. But they were fixed on where the next piece of bread was coming. They began to discuss the problem. I would love to have been there for that conversation. You can see him. We're down to one loaf. What are we going to do? You're following God incarnate. He's already fed you. And thousands more. (laughs) Jesus is kind of direct here, isn't he? Look how direct he is even with his own disciples. You say, well, he's not direct. Oh, that's pretty direct. I don't know about you. That's pretty direct. You men of little faith. You men of little faith. Then Jesus gives them questions meant to remind them of his identity and his work. The questions are simple. They're questions that have implied answers. Not he, They're not supposed to answer him. They're like, hey, do you remember? Do you get it? Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? <laughs> What's the, implant, what's the implied answer of this question? For no good reason. We shouldn't be, we should not be discussing about where the bread is. We shouldn't even be thinking about this. Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? You know, folks, this hasn't been this hasn't been a long time. You're talking probably months. Months. Or the seven loaves of the four thousand. And how many large baskets full you picked up? First they had picked up twelve baskets full of leftovers, and the second time they had picked up seven baskets full of leftovers. How is it? That you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? That's pretty direct, isn't it? I love how he does it. I I pray that as I grow in my walk with the Lord, that I will learn and be able to do these kind of questions. The questions are masterful. Because it's like 
he asks the question, and it's like they confront themselves by answering the question. Does that make sense? It's like, do you not understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand? How many baskets full of how many baskets full did you pick up? And they say seven. Oh, I remember. Oh, what am I doing? What am I thinking about bread? You can almost see this would be spinning in their heads, right? What's going on, Marty? How many of you have had that kind of thing happen to you before? Here I am, I'm worrying. Oh, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Oh, yeah, you provided this all along. You, You are sovereign and you are in control and you love me and you take care of me. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember. What does that say about our hearts, though? Oh, it says a lot, doesn't it? We can hear a message like this. We can see these glorious truths and we'll walk right out this door and forget it. Isn't that true? How many times do we hear these kind of messages? Sometimes I feel like I have to confess to you that as I'm preparing these messages, I I say to myself, wait, didn't I already preach this? Oh, yeah, I preached it two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I preached almost basically the same concept. I think it was John MacArthur that said that there's like eight or six main themes throughout the whole Bible, and he just kind of repeats them over and over and over and over again. It's truth. God's just saying it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Look to me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Look to me. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the way. Trust me. Trust me. Look to me. Believe in me. Depend upon me. I'm the one. That's what he's saying over and over and over again. They had absolutely, these disciples had no reason to worry about food. None. Whatsoever. They had no reason to think Jesus wasn't concerned for their well-being. He wasn't warning them, hey, don't, don't, don't eat the Pharisees and Sadducees leaven. You know how leaven works. Leaven, you take a little bit of leaven and you put it in for the next. You put a little bit aside and you put that and it makes the next loaf rise. So you only have to have a little bit. So Don't even take a little bit of it. So what are they thinking? Oh, well, maybe he doesn't want us to make our next set of bread with their leaven. No, 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 no. He just fed you. And roughly eight to ten thousand more. <laughs> so now, after the question, Jesus reset the warning. Notice he says, But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. By this time, they've answered the question, they get it, right? He's asked questions. I love this again. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do this more. Ask question, ask question, ask question. And before you know it, the people are what? They're getting it on their own. They're actually teaching themselves as they go along. They're talking to themselves. Oh, 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 yeah, it's not about leaven. Oh, you're talking about us not listening to their teaching. But he doesn't say it, does he? Does he say it? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He doesn't even tell them what it is. He doesn't tell them that it's the teaching. He doesn't say it specifically. But because he helped them to see it, helped them to see what he was focused on, they could get it now. 
This is a call to avoid the evil teachings of the Pharisees. They were clueless as to who Jesus was, and the Pharisees, that is, and the Sadducees, and they wanted to kill him. Jesus, after being moved by their evil and adulterous hearts, he was concerned for his sheep, and he says, avoid their self-righteous teaching. Finally, the disciples got it. Notice, then they understood that he did not say, beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. What's the point? They got it. They understood it. So, beloved, you see how this is? We're one of those two. You're either here and you have just totally rejected Christ and you're not there yet. I'd call you to repent and believe in him. He came into the world to die for pay for sinners like us. Or you're in that second group, that second group that lacks faith, that's struggling. The answer is still the same for both the unbeliever and the believer. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. The spiritually blinded religious leaders, are we this way? Self-righteous? Do we think we are good and therefore having everything figured out, we have it all figured out? If so, you need not a hamburger and a hot dog, but humble pie. You need to see that it was for your sin that he died and rose from the dead. For your lack of belief, you need to repent and believe in him. Or are we like the fleshly-minded disciples? Are we distracted by everything but what matters? Are we consumed with self-provision and self-promotion? We know Jesus is Lord and Savior, but we often only go to Him when we need Him. Are we consumed with the things of the world and fixated on them? Are we entertained by the things of the world? Are they the things that we are... Consumed with. Do we roll out of bed saying, hey, what's going on in the world right now? Show me what's going on in the world. Or, are we like that dog, that Syrophoenician lady? Master, please give me some more crumbs. I just need you. You know, there's hope for us, isn't there? There's hope for us. And it's Him. You know... If you lose everything in this world and gain Christ, then that's a great thing, isn't it? Except for that person, that little kid. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the, the irony of it, the perfect timing, right? We look at the... Oh, this is what was convicting of me. 
parents, do we teach do we teach our kids that the all satisfying thing is Jesus Christ? Or do we teach them that all this this the world has is what's important? Are we consumed with and fixated on our next meal? Or our next entertainment? I I think we're all a lot more like the little faith disciples than we want to admit. You know how you know? What do you do? What do you think on? Are you spending time with him? Do you spend more time in the word or on news, social media? I think that we would be right there with the disciples. The good news, Christ Jesus came into the world to die for us too. Even us dogs. And though I'm not worthy, he loves me. And his love for me calls me to seek him more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this confrontation. It shows us our hearts. And, Lord, we don't look at the disciples and stand in judgment. We look at the disciples and say, that's us. We are them. We need you, Father. We ask you to show us your glory. Show us the glory of your Son that we may know Him, that we may serve Him, that we may delight in Him above all else. Oh God, forgive us for our distractible hearts and our minds that are constantly looking for other ways to be entertained instead of the Master Himself. Oh God, give us hearts that long for you. Give us hearts that are satisfied with you. We praise your name. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.